Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Last weekend, I learnt how they made banknotes in the reign of Kublai Khan. China in print, an annual international fair and exhibition of rare books, manuscripts, maps, photographs and ephemera was held at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. And Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art, who's into his fourth decade in the business, showed me around. China in print has been going for about seven years and it's been organised by an antiquarian book dealer in, in London called Warwick and a number of the specialists in the antiquarian book trade come from all over the world to exhibit here so you'll find concentrated in one small area some of the rarest items on parts of China and uh, particularly Hong Kong. So it is a fascinating place for collectors and people who want to learn or people who know and want to find out more about history of this area. So you've got maps, you've got photo albums and you're discovering as you're going around uh, items that you've never seen before. Indeed. Also, you're represented here as, as what is fine art. Have you been purchasing? Have you just been looking at the moment? Uh, well, that's the other side of the equation. I'm a dealer, so yes, I have to buy. <laughs> and so I do look for things and I try to find the rare things. And the good thing is that you can find things to buy. Sometimes things are far too expensive. Sometimes they're really, you know, you can get find a bargain. But if you keep looking, you will find things. And, but generally, they're all priced fairly because the, there is a sort of equitable balance of, of pricing by the dealers here and they're all professional most of them are part of a professional body so uh, that that means that they what you get is very good value and it's genuine and if there's any issues then obviously things can be resolved what is interesting is that if you see albums of photographs for instance you may have an album with say 40 or 80 photographs in it and in that, say if it's an album of Hong Kong, I might find three or four or ten photographs rare, and I might find three or four absolutely exceptional things. And so one of the first things that we saw when we come through the door was this dealer from London, Jenny Allsworth, who's a friend of mine, and she has an album of photographs which relate to Hong Kong, and in it are a couple of really beautiful images of a bygone Hong Kong, which I'd like to show you, if I may. Sure, let's go and have a look. Jenny, may I see your album? Please, of course, with pleasure. I'm just going to get it. So can you tell me first about this lovely cover of the album? The cover is Japanese lacquer, so it's produced in around 1890, and it's inlaid with ivory heads and hands and uh, gold decoration. It's in rather good condition. Inside there are photographs from Hong Kong and Nanking, and Peking. So can you tell me a little bit about where you found it? I bought this in England. So it's come from a family in England and um, and now it's at the Hong Kong China in print. So you're taking it home in a way? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and what's interesting about it, it has several folding panoramas of Hong Kong views. Yes, yeah, so when you say the folding panoramas, literally, it's, um, you, you, um, there's some photographs that are uh, enormous inside, actually. They're very sort of blown-up images. But here you've got this panorama of uh, City Hall and Victoria Peak from the cricket ground. And it's interesting always when I see Hong Kong spelt as one word as well. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> it's nice to see it spelt that way. So you actually and fold them out. How would, how would that have been photographed then? Uh, it was photographed in, in several sections, and then these sections are put together. Sometimes you can even get photographs in sort of 10, 12, even more sections. But there are several in here in this album with two or three sections. 
So Allsworth Rare Books in the United Kingdom, where are you? Are you based in London? Or? Based in London, yes. Um, so you have a whole sort of Hong Kong section? or uh, I have a lot of Far Eastern things, and I also do a lot of books on travel and exploration all around the world, especially Africa and the Far East. Um, so how did you get into that? <laughs> That's a good question. I think we all fall into this, not by design, but somehow or other we all end up enjoying working in this line of work. Yes, I, I would. Surprise, it must I be. I mean, of course, you know, you're running it as a business. You've got to make business decisions, but uh, it must be quite a, a nice job to come to every day. Well, it's a pleasure because every day is completely different, and we don't know what we're going to find, what we're going to discover, what albums we're going to unearth, and who we're going to meet. And with this album, um, you've got a whole variety of photographs put together. And I mean, how big is the album? Yeah, I think it's about twelve inches by eighteen. So the customer would go into one photographer's or several? How would it be done? Well, sometimes the photographers would actually sell empty albums and they, or, or at least they would put the albums together for the customer. And then sometimes the customer would just take away the loose photographs and put them in their own albums. So, And you could order the, the photographs according to a list. So, the, yes, this list I was, I was noticing earlier, you've got, uh, you know, regulars like uh, Peak Tram, for example. So you would have had a, a variety of what would have been at that time, that's sort of not, not quite tourist shots, but perhaps for people who actually lived here, there's Jardine's Lookout. But you've also got Stonecutter's Island in there. Exactly. So that probably wasn't popular at the time, but now it's very interesting because no doubt very few of them were sold. Within Jenny's album, photographs that say someone like me has seen over the years and now they are beautiful photographs so to the layperson who hasn't maybe experienced seeing these because they are exceptional and, and they can't quite believe what they're looking at the other side from my point of view within the album there's going to be four or five extremely rare very very special things and and within this album there are indeed those and one of which you mentioned was the stone cutters which i've never seen before and it's the north side of Stonecutters Island, which shows the hexagonal building, which at one time might have been an element of a prison and on there, but was also part of the army and the military who were over there. And, but it shows the inland water. Now, all that's reclaimed, and what you have now is a sort of futuristic motorway flyover that goes over the top. So that's like a chingy bypass, if you like. But also in here is this exceptional three-piece panorama of Taiping Shan, and it's basically western... And I've only ever seen singular photographs. I've never seen a panorama like this. And the thing about this one is that because it's been folded in and probably hasn't been opened much, um, it might not have meant much to the generations later who had it in England. It, it's in exceptional condition. And it is, it is absolutely fascinating because it's late 1880s, early 1890s, and it's basically at the other end of Hollywood Road where my, where my gallery is based on one end, and this is the other end. And there are all manner of buildings which could be recognised here. And Taiping Shang, of course, because it's been done in the 1880s, 1890s, it's, it's pre the bubonic plague which uh, hit this area in 1894. Indeed, and so much of it was lost and destroyed because of that and had to be rebuilt. So this, this is end of an era, but... Uh, it is, it's fascinating to see the terraces of houses going up the hill and, and little chapels in there and there's a theatre in there and what it does is it goes to the waterfront and you see how slight the distance is between where they're taking the photograph based on a, on a hill looking back to the harbour and then 
beyond you can see Kowloon and, and Chim Sa Choi. And there is a caption here which I'd like to read, if I may. Our view of harbour from Fernside. Fernside crops up quite often in this album, which may have been the compiler's residence. It is the residence, probably, of the people who own the, the album. Yeah. A couple of the captions point to this is the way to Fernside. So you'd be sitting in this colonial house, probably, or the, or the photographer would be on maybe on the balcony of this house or in the garden, looking down on this, but it is the most exceptional panorama. Most of the panoramas you see of Hong Kong photographically are taken from nearer central or the other side of the eastern side rather than the western side. So this is a real treasure. Oh, super fine, Jenny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, you had one, we've, we've missed one already that, that uh, went yesterday, but that was a different kind of album. That was a different kind of album. It was a similar size, uh, quite a large album, but it was one family's record of their time in Hong Kong and photographs relating to their, their life and to the compiler's work. So he, Hastings, he had been um, superintendent of the police, harbour master and number senior of positions. senior positions. Yeah. There was one very quirky photograph in there of a living chess tournament that took place in Hong Kong with the pieces being people dressed up and uh, playing this chess game on a very large chess board. That was a fascinating album and it's found a nice home in Hong Kong. So have you lived in Hong Kong previously or you've just become more interested as you've been finding these Hong Kong products in a way? Sadly I've never lived in Hong Kong and if I had turned up here in my 20s I'm sure I would have wanted to stay at that time and I would never have left but I've been coming to the book fair for approximately 10 years now so my love of Hong Kong has been ever increasing and I, I love the history and I've learned so much from Jonathan Wattis and, and through selling these rare books on Hong Kong and China So I've been talking with Jenny Allsworth of Allsworth Rare Books so good luck with the weekend Thank you so much, thank you I'm here with Andrea Mazzocchi and Joanna Skeels. You're from Bernard Quaritch Limited. So you're the actual organisers of the uh, fair? Yes, we do. Uh, we started organising this fair seven years ago and we have been in the Hong Kong Maritime Museum for the last four years. And uh, you've brought some uh, Hong Kong elements with you? Yes, we did uh, bring some Hong Kong elements with us. You did? Are they already sold? Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm afraid they're all gone. Yesterday and the opening was very busy. We still have one beautiful Hong Kong item, which is a 1864 map uh, of the province, which shows also Hong Kong and, uh, and Macau. Uh, but that's about the only thing we have left. 1864, so who would have done that? Uh, is, uh, it was published by the government, the Chinese government. It were, they were trying to, to complete a, a survey of China. So the complete set has actually 26 maps, and this is only one of 26. Uh, but this is the one that covers uh, the province of Hong Kong. So this government map would have been used for what purpose? Um, is, is basically for civil servant uh, to, uh, to, to check the area. In fact, this particular example is uh, entirely annotated by a contemporary user, uh, which I, we think is a member of the government. Now, Joanna, how many stalls have you got here this year? So this year, I think we have nearly 30, and uh, it's quite surprising to think that 
It's only six years ago. We were based at the um, Lock Char Tea House, which is a quite a small venue. There's only six exhibitors, and now six years on, we've got 30, and we've had to like disappoint quite a few people this year. So uh, it's really kind of sprung up, and everyone's quite excited. The last couple of years, especially, have been really strong, and all the dealers seem you know, very pleased with the results. So you've got all sorts of Hong Kong items here. Yeah, so um, I think dealers try to focus on Hong Kong and mainland China, and then there's also other dealers dealing in like first editions or English literature. But um, as Andreas told you, a lot of those things get the Hong Kong items get uh, scooped up straight away. So, I mean, are basically people waiting outside the door or are you giving lists yeah, out of what, what's going to already be available? We're trying to, like, keep the doors closed until opening time at 4pm and people are trying to sneak in. And, um, so is it like a Boxing Day sale? It, yeah, it is actually. I mean, in our own little comparative <laughs> way. I mean, maybe not quite the cues out of Argos or something. But, yeah, there was uh, a lot of people waiting outside and... Um, Oh, so, but, I mean, as I say, do you inform people uh, ahead what kind of things will be on show? Yeah, so um, as the organisers, we kind of email around our main list, let people know the dates, and we might, like, pick out some of the highlights that the exhibitors are going to bring. And then even the exhibitors are also, you know, speaking to all their people and sending them lists of everything they'll be bringing. So some business is even done before the fair opens by you know, correspondence. This is the stand of one of the leading map dealers, uh, who's come to Hong Kong. So he's a highly specialised dealer and he finds all sorts of treasures. What we have in front of us in this cabinet are two wonderful atlases and from the 16th century. They're very early. But below it is a manuscript map by Richard Collinson of an, a part of Hong Kong. And it's the eastern part of Hong Kong. So this is hand-drawn. This map is probably unique. And it's the ground drawing for what would become part of a hydrographic map for the Admiralty. So these drawings would probably have been done in, in, in different series and then they would have been put together in a chart which would have been a, a, of use to mariners. Richard Collinson was very important in terms of the early mapping of Hong Kong because he was part of a team. Together with Kellett, they mapped the coast of China all the way from Hong Kong up to Shanghai in detail. So they did the hydrographic sounding and the, and the mapping of the coastline. And before that, they were involved with one of the earliest accurate surveys of Hong Kong with Sir Edward Belcher. So the three of them were involved with mapping Hong Kong in 1841. This map, I think, dates to about 1842, and it shows the outline of what is basically northeast Hong Kong Island and then you've got Chim Sa Choi, and then you've got going round to the east side and going up to, to Sai Kung, past Clearwater Bay, and the Outer Islands. And some of the names are marked in English and some of them in Chinese. But this is a very special map and quite possibly unique. Hi, my name's Daniel Crouch, and I'm a partner at Daniel Crouch Rare Books in London and New York. So this is the uh, Richard Collinson manuscript from between 1842 and 1845, and it's a unique chart of what's now known as the new territories and really it's uh, showing the area from the east of Hong Kong up to Mears Bay and it's charted presumably as a draft for the subsequent chart by Collinson of the same region. The map however covers a different area from the chart. Collinson and James Horsburgh were responsible really for the mapping from Canton River down to Mears Bay between them and this covers the area of the overlap of the chart. And so you'll see on the west of the chart, uh, Hong Kong, which is actually more on the Horsburgh charts of the region. 
The other interesting facet of the, uh, of the chart is the addition of the Chinese names in manuscripts, presumably um, added by a helpful friend at the time who sadly remains anonymous. I see. So, th- that, so Collinson would have been collaborating? Yes, absolutely. Both Collinson and Horsburgh would have worked with local agents who would have given them survey information, but more importantly, place names and local names. For Both Collinson and Horsburgh worked for the Admiralty, and there were Admiralty standards for how to produce a survey, which, was a, which, which involves not only um, soundings, as you mentioned, of the ocean floor, but also trigonometrical observations of the coastline, which are then... Uh, added together. The, the original surveys would have been mostly on, on, on drawings or, or large-scale charts, which they then uh, add together and edit to form the survey of the, of the whole region. So this would have been for the British government? Yes, absolutely, for the Admiralty. Uh, or the East India Company. Uh, there's a big blurred line between the uh, British Navy and the East India Company. It was really a private army that was working in cahoots with the Admiralty at the time. How long would that take, do you think? Actually, I do know the answer to that question. But only recently, because we had a copy a couple of years ago of Horsburgh's letterbook, where we discovered how long it was not only in the making of the charts, which took a ridiculously long, a large amount of time, but also preparation of the plates, the printing, and then really interestingly, the shipping out here. So Horsburgh's account book would run for five years after the survey, before he got paid for uh, some of the later profits. So really, it's a very, very bad business to be in, chart-making. Yeah, you don't want to be a freelancer in that. To be honest, something I understand today. (laughs) So so the the, the surveys themselves were done between 1836 and 1842 of this region. So really, you've got just the surveying alone. Surveying alone is about six years. Then they've they've got to get the maps back to London, engrave them on copper and steel, um, and then produce the charts. Then you have to sell the charts. Now, obviously, there's a market for them in London with the East India Company, but then also, as Horsburgh's letterbook teaches us, he's selling to agents in Calcutta, uh, in Singapore, in Jakarta, and in Hong Kong, obviously. Um, the problem was getting paid, so it takes a year and a half for the charts to get out here, and then a year and a half for the money to get back. And so what he had was an elaborate series of swap deals arranged whereby he would have lines of credit with certain people based upon pre-sales of his charts. So if you're going to become a cartographer in pre-colonial Hong Kong, you need to have a good family trust fund. You need to have all the the East India Company or the hydrographic office behind you. (laughs) It's a remarkable piece. Can you tell me where it was found? It it actually comes from a, a, a private collector. So you come every year? Yep, yeah, we've been coming every year for, I think, six, seven years now. It's one of my favourite fairs. It's a nice place to be. Um, it's mostly a food pilgrimage, but there's some maps thrown in. <laughs> so we come over towards the window here with this wonderful view of Victoria Harbour. And right beside it are a couple of galleries. One belongs to Pablo Butcher from the UK, and the other belongs to Eve, who has Librairie Ancien Indusiam of Hong Kong. It's one of the two or three book dealers that we are together in Hong Kong. On Pablo's stand, he has many books, but he also has photo albums and paintings and all manner of different things. But on the wall is a 1959 poster for a German film, which is called Espionage à Hong Kong. It is so of the period there looks to be a, a pirate with a knife between his teeth scaling a wall and there's a young damsel sitting there with her fan with a fire going on behind but it's, it's a, a bit of chinoiserie from the late 50s early 60s fascinating poster i don't think i know the film but it's a wonderful piece of uh, graphic well, art we, we go and see it yes <laughs> And then we go step out over this way and we see a lot of Eve's material, which is sort of books 
and Hong Kong related material. Here oh, we've we got have here the, the China Coasters Tide Book and Nautical Pocket Manual 1923. You have one of those, do you? I have one of those, but you know, these, that doesn't mean to say they're not rare. So Eve also has, you know, rare things. So uh, it's interesting. There's on, on another table here we have lots of postcards, so you can look at, you know, which are China and Hong Kong. So can you tell me about a couple of items that you, uh, you've got at the fair? Yes, I will show you my best, my, my highlight. This is a, a spe specific photo album, <coughs> uh, uh, original album of 60 pictures uh, on Hong Kong, Macao, um, Shanghai, uh, Canton, uh, and, and also Beijing, which is um, uh, yeah, difficult to find and difficult to sell. <laughs> what year was it made? Uh, it's around, around 1900. Um, and I'm trying to remember whether it's 1896 or 1903, but I think, I think it's around 1900. Maybe we have it in the front, but it is a very beautiful... Oh, R.C. Hurley. 1901. 1901, there we are. Okay, I'm out by a year. I'm given a, a year's grace. Um, and each of the pictures has captions, and it and is beautifully surrounded with this little border, passepartout. And I think Hurley was meticulous and very rarely made mistakes on his captions, unlike other photographers sometimes made mistakes with their captions. These are the books by Frederick Schiff. They're basically among the most beautiful Art Deco design books that were done and the writing was done by Ellen Thorbeck who I believe was Belgian originally but she married the Dutch ambassador in Beijing and so she was known as the ambassador's wife but in fact she was a really talented photographer and her photographs are really evocative inside here and she worked very closely with the Austrian cartoonist called Friedrich Schiff and he did these wonderful caricatures of people. But if you open the book and you see a page, you can see how beautifully designed they are. Because it's a work of great graphic achievement, I think. You get sort of triangles opposing and lines crossing, people walking across the page and, and different type typefaces. But with wonderful photographs like this one here is probably Pottinger Street with children reading books, which I know from a friend who was brought up in this area of Pottinger Street that you could actually just rent a book for a few cents and you could sit there and read it and then you took it back again. And this is very close to where Eve and I have our shops. So if you imagine, this is in the 30s, and he was also there in the 50s, and he would rent a little book, and he would sit down, and he'd read it on the steps, in and in Hong Kong, in Bottinger yeah, Street. Yeah, of course, I heard about, about this yes. story, yes. yes. So, so each, you open a page of this book, and each one has a story, and it's fascinating. So there's so many stories within here, which they will touch upon, but if, if even I, having lived in these areas for quite a long time, and worked here, we can probably tell many tales about what might be going on behind the scenes. So this area was mostly inhabited by uh, printers and, and brothels. And tailors. <laughs> and, and, and tailors. Oh, and brothels, yes. Brothel. Yes, a red light my, my former place um, in Lindos Terras was a, probably a former brothel lounge, so it was nice to see that uh, it became a, a, a sort of uh, intellectual place. <laughs> <laughs> So did you have lots of chandeliers? And uh, a lot of... <laughs> mirrors and chandeliers. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to an old colleague of mine, Bernard Shapiro. He's not actually old, he's just, I've known him a long time. He is one of the... Feels the, old. One of the, the great, famous book dealers from London. Having him out here is very special, and he always has very good things on his stands. We've got a fantastic book over here, which actually is worth talking to you about. One of the classic 20th century books on Hong Kong by Forbecker. And this is a very, very special and unique copy. And I use unique in the true sense of the word, meaning there's only one of them. Not only is it in beautiful condition with the original dust wrapper, 
which is very rare, but it also happens to be a presentation copy from the authoress to her daughter, dated the year of publication. So within the gallery here at the Maritime Museum, there were four people who have had galleries um, or bookshops in Hong Kong, and this one we are visiting now is... Chris Bailey's, which is called Picture This. So welcome back to Hong Kong, Chris. Thank you, Anna-Marie. It's <laughs> lovely to be back, actually. Sadly, only for six days. Can you tell me a bit about your movie posters? Our movie posters? Yes, of course. Back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, Hong Kong was always considered to be exotic and the Far East, and Hollywood actually traded on that by making a number of films set in Hong Kong or ostensibly set in Hong Kong, and they recorded those with the paper posters that were produced as well. Now, the most famous of those is, of course, The World of Susie Wong, which Nancy Kwan starred in. But there were several others, including Ferry to Hong Kong, which was probably Orson Welles' worst appearance on the silver screen. <laughs> ferry to Hong Kong? Ferry from where? Hong Kong. Well, the, the, the ferry was the Macau ferry that moved from Hong Kong to Macau and back. And there was somebody who actually travelled back and forth on the ferry because he was avoiding the authorities at both ends and could never be picked up as long as he stayed on the ferry. And that was Orson Welles? Well, he, that was Orson Welles in the film, that's exactly right. <laughs> Have you watched all of these? I've watched that one. It was not my best use of a Saturday evening. <laughs> But I, I think some of the material we have on our stand is a little bit different because we focus a lot on uh, 20th century material and that works very well with our posters. And I have here a proof of a book that I'm working on on Hong Kong travel posters. I've spent the last uh, 15 years assembling a collection of over 100 Hong Kong travel posters. Um, we exhibited about 40 of them at the Mandarin Hotel back in 2003 as part of their 40th anniversary. And they've been very much hidden since then, so I'm trying to get them out and let the public enjoy them a bit more and I'm in the process of publishing a book to archive them and let everybody enjoy this wonderful collection. This is a Chinese pharmacopoeia of herbal medicines, a collection of 82 wooden boards carved on both sides with 820 labels. And this, this is extraordinary wood blocks with, with these labels which are for printing and they're housed in this red lacquer box which has gilding and... Uh, mandarins and children decorating the box it's a most extraordinary piece of you know and it's a printing device isn't it so this is china in print and so you will get all manner of different things there is another chap who has a stand over here i'd like to very quickly take you over there to meet a friend from australia who has most extraordinary things printing elements here. This is Douglas Stewart and maybe Douglas could tell you a little bit about some of the really extraordinary printing devices on early printing elements he has collected. One of the most interesting things that we have at the fair is a printing block for a banknote during the reign of Kublai Khan in 1287 AD. It's an astonishing piece which crosses over the art of printing, antiquities and uh, the history of currency, money and finance in China. It's something that, due to its sheer physicality, captures the imagination, unlike really anything else I've seen at the book fair. It dates back to when? 1287 AD. It's one of the only known printing blocks in private hands from that period. So they would literally have put parchment on the other side in order to create banknotes? That's right. This is uh, during a time when in order, currency was largely based on copper coinage. And you can imagine that when um, you're too wealthy and you're too successful in business, it becomes quite arduous carrying a 100 or a 1,000 copper coins around. And so you have 
banknotes, you have a promissory note. To find an original banknote from that period is rare, but to find the original matrix from which the banknote is printed is even rarer. So this would have been Kublai Khan? During the reign of Kublai Khan. The provenance is exceptional as well. Uh, this belongs to a private collector who purchased it from the great New York dealer H.P. Krauss, and it came from his private collection in about the 1980s. He acquired it from Paul Pelio's collection, Paul Pelio being the great sinologist that excavated the Dunghuang Caves in western China in about 1906. He passed away in the 1940s, and in the 1950s, his family sold his collection to H.P. Krauss. So we can track the provenance over the last century. How exciting. Yeah, I think you do have one of the most interesting I think so. Items. Yeah. I think, gen- I think genuinely, like, you know, there's a lot of rare books here which are really exciting, but to have the thing that you print money from in China in the 13th century, like, it's extraordinary. My thanks to all the dealers we met and to Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art for showing me around the China in Print Fair and Exhibition last weekend at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.